You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, Resonate, we are continuing this series called Identity Theft, and as we get into this, uh, it's really about this idea of understanding who Jesus is, and as Jesus speaks into his own language, this is who I am, being able to say, okay, does that match up with what we believe Jesus is, or this current iteration of kind of the thought around Jesus? And as I thought about this, and I thought about um, kind of where we're going with this in this sermon series, it reminded me of my my first vehicle. And uh, so I had a little Ford Ranger and this is in high school. And I I remember thinking, Hey, this is going to be so cool. um, If I began to kind of show my own personality um, by getting like these stickers of like brands that I uh, like uh, identified with and stuff like that. So I remember um, this moment where uh, I got this sticker of one of these brands that I thought this is just the coolest brand. Like I just, a a brand that I wanted to identify with. Um, But uh, it's kind of embarrassing now to say it, but uh, it it was the brand Massimo. Have you ever heard of Massimo, like, and so I remember right on the back of my truck, um, there I got this sticker. I was like, this is really cool. This is like me, like, I, this is an aspirational brand here. Um, and so I put this sticker right on the, on the back windshield of my truck and, you know, drove around and, and, and so I thought it was cool and sold the truck, took the sticker off, whatever. And so, um, then a few years ago, I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm in target with my wife and I, I'm wandering around and all of a sudden, what do I see there? Massimo, like Massimo is there in Target. And I was like, what just happened? Like, this is the aspirational brand of my youth. And now it is in Target. How did this happen? And like, how did Joe Massimo or whoever it is that created Massimo, right? Uh, like, what happened with him? Like, he thought, hey, this is an aspirational brand. We're, we're going to be these kind of people. And then one day Target calls up and says, hey, can we have your stuff? And he's like, yeah, whatever. You know, so this like $50 shirt ended up being like $17.95 at, uh, at, at, at Target. And so I almost said Walmart, um, in this. And so like, there's this idea, like, um, I was like crushed. I was like, oh man, like these things of my youth are now like not nearly as cool. And, uh, and so I thought about this too. It's the same kind of idea. Have you ever thought about an artist, um, who's like going through something and then they begin to say, Hey, the only way that I can really express the depth of emotion, uh, that I'm feeling with this, or, or the only way that I can really take and begin to write a wrong or to be able to talk about this social injustice is to be able to put this to music. And I've got to be able to take and create art around this to really transform the world and be able to tell people the story. And then one day, you know, they, they write, they, they record this song and it goes out and, and this is like them and their expressions of who they are. And then one day they get into an elevator and over the elevator, the sweet sounds that, that soothe the ride up or down to whatever floor that you want to go to they hear their song. Like, is that, is that just, I wonder how they feel in those moments or like, or they're shopping for Massimo and Target and all of a sudden, um, the retail therapy is, is motivated by the fact that they hear their song talking about this social injustice or this deep, painful thing that they went to. I wonder what happens in that moment where they say, that's not what I intended. I didn't write this to be a elevator, um, elevator music or for this to end up being retail therapy, right? Um, I meant, I meant to do this in order to change the world. And here we are now I'm buying Massimo and Target listening to this song. Um, and so there's this, this interesting thing I think that happens when we begin to say, Hey, what was the intent of something? Like, what was the idea that it started with? And ultimately, where did it end up? And as we think about, uh, related back to Jesus, when we begin to think about who Jesus is and what did Jesus entail? Like, what was he all about? And then we go back and begin to say, okay, what did he say about himself? And what is interesting is I think that oftentimes the way that Jesus is portrayed or this idea that we've created, what is, what is Jesus and what is Jesus all about is oftentimes a shell or a shadow of what actually Jesus had to say about himself. And so when we think about, uh, this, this reality, what we're, what we're looking at is to be able to say, let's look specifically about what Jesus said of himself. And let's ask, is this comparing to what we see in the world around us? And so 
so here we're at. And today we're going to get into a passage. And this passage is just one of the core realities of Christianity. And it's a passage where Jesus begins to speak um, about himself in a very, very profound way. And so here it is. It's in John 11. It says this. And then Jesus said to her, he's speaking to a woman named Martha. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And, and this is just, this is so key because as we begin to see this and as we understand this, what Jesus is talking about is, is the fact that he is going to embody and then ultimately he is going to carry out the most significant aspect of Christianity. Above all, Christianity is not based on or proven by or validated by or founded upon a set of beliefs. Now that might sound crazy to you as you begin to say, okay, Christianity is not founded on a set of beliefs. And I would say, no, as we begin to think about, um, there's a, a, how, who Christianity, what, what Christianity is all about. And we begin to look at this. It's far beyond just a set of beliefs. Um, there are a lot of other religions or belief system that have beliefs. There's other religions that have books and, um, and founders and, um, and these set of beliefs that they begin to have. And if that's as far as we take this thing, that it's a, it's a person that has a book and there's a set of beliefs that come out of that, then when we begin to see Jesus talking about the exclusivity of Christ, about the exclusivity of his way to God, and we begin to hold that up, we can begin to say, okay, this doesn't, it seems like you can just pick your own adventure because everybody has a person, everybody has a book, and everybody has a belief. And you just figure out which one is which, and you just figure out which one you prefer, but it all leads to God. Except that's not the story of Christianity. And when Jesus says, hey, I'm the only way, that's not just because there's a set of beliefs, there's a person and there's a book. See, this is the key. There's one thing that's radically different. And the one thing that the entire idea of Christianity hinges upon is the bodily resurrection of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago. So we believe that Jesus was put to death by the Roman government and placed into a tomb on a Friday and on a Sunday emerges from that same tomb having been brought back to life. And this event is the core reason behind Christianity. It's what separates Christianity from all other belief system because we believe something happened. And so in this, we don't start with the Bible. We don't start with creation. We don't even start with the belief in God. We start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there's no resurrection, then it's logical to question all of the other things. Creation, the Bible, spirituality, God. It's logical to question all of that if the resurrection is not true. But because of the historical event of the resurrection of Christ, you can view the Bible with authority. You can create, you can view creation as an act of intelligent design. You can start with the starting point of spirituality. And I know that today when we begin to say, hey, the starting point of my belief system, the starting point of my worldview is one of spirituality, that's deeply difficult for us to integrate with our modern view of how to see the world. And see, if you, I was reading an article that said 2000 or sorry, 200 years ago, everybody was spiritual. Like the, it's just, you had a spiritual belief system at the very core of who you were. Like to, to believe in God was universal. Now, as we begin to get into academic environments, we are in these college towns, right? And when we begin to think about what it looks like for us to actually have a belief system, if you have a belief system that starts with spirituality, it's hard to be taken seriously. It's hard for that to be validated. If we come into context to saying, hey, the foundation of my belief system is on spirituality, that's very hard for us to find validation in these kind of things. It's almost an impossibility of belief. And yet when we begin to think about this and we begin to ask, okay, if we are going to have the Christianity as a foundation of this, we need to have some intellectual honesty about the resurrection. And we need to be able to peer deeply into this and ask really hard questions about the resurrection and begin to understand why is it if something happens that this changes my belief system? And why is it that I should trust this? Why is this something that we should be able to orient our lives around? And can we do something that goes against what is a, a, a tide of belief? belief systems that are founded on something that does not include the valid validity of, of, uh, of spirituality. 
And so let's go back to the event, the event of the resurrection, and let's go through this and let's figure out what does this look like and how we can understand um, really the resurrection. So here's where it is in uh, Luke chapter 24. It says this, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they, were wondering about, uh, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still, in, uh, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others uh, with with them who told them told this uh, to the disciple to the apostles. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is the story of the resurrection. And what we have to do today is we have to figure out where we're going to land on this. Where are we going to land? Is this Jesus who's saying, I am the resurrection? And the story that follows where he carries out this understanding of his identity in action. What are we going to do with this? Because this is what he says. And really, as we begin to think about who Jesus is, we've got to choose one way or the other. Either we believe Jesus and we believe the story or we don't. And as we begin to look at this, what I want to ask is, what do we believe about this? Is it the greatest hoax in a context where there's all these people who are doing around Jesus, um, it wasn't the only one that was pronounced the Messiah. There was, there was men who came up, created a, a following around themselves, proclaimed themselves to be the Messiah. They would die or they would get killed and their followers would basically go home and it would kind of, the, the, the whole movement would dissipate. Yet it's not that for Jesus as we begin to see. But was this all a hoax? Was this all something that these people put together? Or is Jesus the stuff of legend? Did basically a guy live and he, he created something, but then everyone around him wanted after Jesus died for this thing to keep going so bad because his message was so great. And it would be even better if this was actually true and all these things that he said, or maybe this unfolded over time and over the years went on, all the, the legend of Jesus grew and grew and grew and then he became deity. And, and what do we believe about this? Because if you're going to have a worldview that's going to change your life, you got to figure out what are you going to do with the resurrection? Is it the greatest hoax or is it the pivotal moment in humanity? Is it the moment that something happens that changes everything? What are you going to do with Jesus? And so here's what I'd like to do today. I'd like to take and I'd like to walk through and help us to understand some of, the, uh, some of the alternative views and the alternative theories of what it looks like to see the resurrection. And I want us to press into this and to be intellectually honest with these things and to be able to ask, okay, what do people think about this event in history called the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if he didn't die, like what do we begin to, uh, or he didn't get resurrected, what is it that we begin to have as an alternative theories and how do we process this with some logic? The one thing that's clear is this, Jesus existed and Jesus was put to death. On that, no one is, is really saying, hey, we have an alternative view of the fact that Jesus existed and that he was put to death. There's more literature about Jesus' life than Julius Caesar. So there's not something that we begin to say, hey, well, there's, there's a lack of evidence that Jesus existed. Jesus existed. What we have to press into is asking, what are the alternative theories and what should we believe about the resurrection? So let me get into it. There's five different things that we begin to say are options for us to begin to believe about the resurrection. Number one, 
as we begin to think about this, and as we begin to ask, um, what are some alternative ways to be able to think about the resurrection? One of the things that um, people have put out through the years in terms of an alternative explanation for this is what they would call the wrong tomb theory, or, uh, or possibly, you know, this is one of those things where they had the address of the tomb as 606 Dead Man Drive, and, um, and it was actually 909 Dead Man Drive. And so what happens are these people, they're under duress, and and, um, and this is a really difficult place for them, right? As they begin to process through, hey, our, our, our hope, our Savior just died. And so they, um, out of this, um, you know, thought of they're going to this tomb, they get to this place and it's empty. And they just freak out and they're like, oh my goodness, it's true, it's true, it's true. But the fact is, it's just the wrong tomb. And they've just gone to this place where it's actually not, um, it's actually not the tomb where Jesus was buried. But it, ultimately, it was something that they thought Jesus had resurrected because they went to the wrong tomb. Now, in fairness, there's a lot of tombs in this area. Like if you think about graveyards and you think about um, these, these places, they would find a place and they would kind of put everybody in the same area. And so being able to find the right one might be a, a tricky thing. But this is the first idea of really an alternative theory. But when we begin to look at this, and when we begin to ask um, probing questions about this theory, it begins to break down. So first of all, it begins to break down because um, we begin to see that Christianity began to uh, create social unrest. And those in power ultimately did not want Christianity. We begin to see this by, by the persecution that immediately follows. There's no like, hey, this is really helpful for us, for the people in power. And so what could have happened is easily those who knew that it was actually 606 Dead Man Drive could have been able to say, hey, hey, guys, before you get carried away with this, it's this tomb. Here's the tomb, right? It's the one with the guards in front of it, right? Um, it's the one that's been sealed. We can begin to see this is actually the tomb. The tomb that you went to has not been ever used or, you know, was recently vacated um, in this. Um, and so this is this idea that this is how um, they would have been able to say, hey, actually, here's Jesus's body. If we need to, we can roll the stone away and we can see that Jesus is in this tomb. It could have been quickly, um, quickly stopped. One, the other thing, too, is there would have been no post-resurrection sightings of Jesus if, in fact, um, they had simply gone to the wrong tomb. They would have had to make all of that stuff up. And, um, and, and here's just a little bit of speculation, but as long as we're on the topic, I find it interesting that these guys can begin to start this global movement um, out of 120 people, but they cannot figure out how to get to a grave, right? They cannot figure out which grave. And so, and as we can be, begin to look at, maybe they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed, but but come on, this is a big deal. Like you might need to check twice um, to make sure that you're like, oh, did we get the right, uh, the right tomb? And so as we begin to think about this, these guys had the capacity to start a movement, but not to be able to figure out the wrong grave. That's just my thoughts, but, uh, but I think it's highly unlikely. So that's the wrong tomb theory. The next one is this. The next one's a little bit more interesting. It's the mass hallucination theory. And the mass hallucination theory um, is basically this, over the years, there's been this scientific research on what happens when people that are under duress or people that have a deep belief system of something um, begin to have these like group hallucinations. And, and really what they say is probably what happened is this, that, that Jesus, you know, he went through this significant ordeal. He was buried. And then all of these people, because they so wanted Jesus to be able to overcome uh, death and they so wanted Jesus um, to be resurrected, they began to simply out of this um, sense of hallucination, they began to picture Jesus where Jesus was not. And, um, and so there's science around some of this stuff that happens sometimes with not just one person, but it happens with multiple people that they begin to see something. And this begins to be something that begins to, um, you know, ultimately people begin to say, Hey, this is what we saw. This is what it looks like. So that's called the mass hallucination theory. And uh, again, this is one of those things that if you begin to press into this as an alternative to the resurrection, you begin to run into some logical issues with this. Um, number one, again, Jesus's body would have still been able to be provided. 
So you can hallucinate all you want, but if they roll away the stone and there's still a body there, then immediately they're like, I don't know what you're tripping on, but this is actually where Jesus is, right? So you're having all these hallucinations and maybe you ate some stuff in a field somewhere that you shouldn't have, but, but this is really where Jesus is, right? And this is where we can begin to prove definitively that he is here. So in this, um, the other thing too, is you begin to look at like the science of mass hallucination. Uh, you begin to recognize what, what the Bible reports in terms of this being able to be a, a part of how they, they had these sightings of Jesus just doesn't fit into anything that we've seen in science. One, it's far too long. As you begin to think about 40 days, that, that's, that's never, it's more, it's like two or three days, um, but not 40 days, not something that goes this long on, in terms of being able to have hallucination. And ultimately it's usually a very small group group of people that have, um, that may have these group hallucinations. But what we begin to see is that Jesus appeared to up to 500 people. And that is far outside any scope of scientific understanding of mass hallucination. Um, even if the word mass is in it, it never gets to the size of that, 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 that scope in terms of 500 people. So this is this issue as you begin to say, okay, did, does mass hallucination fit and we begin to say at some point, no, that, that still doesn't answer the questions as well as they need to be answered. So we go on. Number three, here we have the Christian conspiracy theory, or what I like to call the Weekend at Bernie's theory. And um, if you've never seen Weekend at Bernie's, um, it's mildly amusing. So um, maybe if you get really bored one day, Weekend at Bernie's is, is an option for you. Basically, they take a dead guy and they party with dead, a dead guy named Bernie for, uh, for a weekend. So this is, uh, this is this idea that these people, these disciples, these followers of Jesus, deeply wanted this to be true. And because they deeply wanted this to be true, um, they went to such lengths that they would be able to say, okay, so we know that Jesus was full of it. And we know that Jesus didn't ultimately accomplish what he needed to accomplish to be able to see all of these prophecies come true. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take and we're going to act like they are true. And we're going to proclaim Jesus to the, be the Messiah, even though we don't have any evidence to that end. So this is the conspiracy that, that basically these Christians, in order to promote themselves, in order for them to have um, some sort of a, a place of significance, they begin to proliferate the fact that Jesus actually was the Messiah and that Jesus actually rose from the dead and was resurrected in order for them to be um, people that had um, power and significance. And so this is, that, this is that idea. As we begin to press into this, and as we begin to ask this, one of the things that we begin to immediately kind of run against is the idea that when we look into the scripture, none of these disciples, none of these followers of Jesus have elevated status. In fact, they all look like fools. They all look like they missed it. I mean, even this story that I just read to you, like Jesus proclaiming, this is who I am. This is what I'm all about. And they're going in there and they can't even remember that Jesus had said that he was going to rise on the third day. In, in no way does this paint them as like these people that are bastions of faith, that have all this courage and that knew it from the very beginning and just simply need to pro proclaim this outside. They are cowards. They are mistake filled. They are people of weak faith. Like all of this is just what we begin to see. And they're, they're telling the story of what this is all about. So another thing that we begin to see is that, um, is that they go to their deaths with many opportunities to, to come clean with their story, if it's the story, but no one ever remotely changes their story. Uh, this is the this is crazy thing, that they, uh, 10 out of the 11 are, are put to death, are martyred for their faith. That's crazy. If you know this is to be fake, that you would say, yeah, kill me. I know it's fake. I know this is not real. I know we just made this up to kind of promote our brand here, but this is something that's worth my life. No one ever says this. It doesn't make any sense. There's a guy named Charles Colson, um, and if you don't know Charles Colson, he was a he was a fundamental part of the Watergate scandal. And if you don't know what the Watergate scandal is, um, this is what this is the the first scandal that put Gate at the end of everything else. So every other scandal is named after the Water uh, Watergate Hotel, um, and so every scandal has Gate at the end. And it's because of uh, this. And he went to prison because of his role in this. And here's what he says. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, 
And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Think about, think about this. If, if really the Christian theory is going to stand up under scrutiny, we have to understand that these guys, um, like it just, it, it, you just apply some logic to this and it just doesn't hold up. And it just doesn't hold up that they would ultimately uh, create this. And again, we get to a point where we have to dismiss this as an alternative to the, to the resurrection because as we apply logic, it just doesn't seem like it's a viable assumption for us to believe in that. Now we get into the theories that Jesus actually didn't die. And one of these is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is this. Uh, it, it's that Jesus really didn't die. He just kind of fainted. Therefore, the disciples saw only a revived, resuscitated Christ. And when he was placed in the tomb, he was still alive. And the disciples mistook him to be dead and buried him alive. And after, after several hours, he was revived in the coolness of the tomb. He arose and he departed. Basically, this is this idea that it was merely a flesh wound, right? And that this was one of those things that um, he begins this and he's just so overwhelmed by this that he faints and they believe he's dead. So they put him in the grave and he just, you know, gets a little bit of time to, to kind of catch his breath and gets a little shut eye. And then he comes back and he's good as new, right? And he says, hey, I'm up, back from the dead. And so this is Jesus and this is this idea of the swoon theory. As we, again, we look at this, we begin to ask hard questions and we begin to say, okay, could this really happen? Now, to be fair, there's, there's stories that we have about people who were buried alive because they were thought to be dead. In fact, one of them is uh, a, st a story called, uh, about Thea the dog. And Thea the dog was a dog that was run over and um, thought to be dead over in Moses Lake. And, um, and anyway, so they buried Thea the dog. But then a neighbor began to hear something underneath the ground and, and unearthed Thea the dog and, and realized that this dog was still alive. And, um, and ultimately, they took Thea the dog and uh, raised $28,000 for her to get reconstructive surgery at WSU Vet Med. So here's this, this story of the, the resurrection Thea the dog, right? And so we begin to say, okay, so that, that happens in terms of people thinking other people are dead, but could this have happened to Jesus? So secular historians begin to kind of outline what happened to Jesus. He's beaten three times. He's given 39 lashes. And, and I want you to know that these, if you begin to research what ha those lashes, basically they did everything they could to get you as close to death as they could. And then he's taken and he's dehydrated. He's placed upon a cross. He's, he, the nails are driven into his wrist and to his ankles. And this is this moment that he ultimately is, uh, is there. And he's hanging on this cross until, it is, it is seemingly evident that he is to die. Now, one of these things you have to understand is that like going through all of that and then being able to say, then I spent a little time laying in a cool, you know, rock side of, of this tomb. And, uh, and then what I was able to do is I was able to take off the clothes and then I rolled the stone away. Then I did some hand to hand combat with the Roman soldiers that were there. And then I walked over to my friends and said, Hey, I'm back. And so this is like this idea that you begin to say, hey, that's actually not really possible. Plus, here's the other thing, that, Roman, uh, that the Romans were excellent at, at executing people. They had crucifixion down. Um, they did crucifixion, and, and really two things were punishable by death is in terms of uh, being, uh, working for the government. One, if you, were a, if you guarded a prison and you let your prisoners out, it would cost you your life. Two, if you were an executioner and you didn't kill people, they would execute you. So it's in their best interest to make sure that all the people are dead. In many cases, what would happen is they would break the legs of the person who was being crucified because um, just physiologically, when you're on the cross and you're hanging by your hands, basically you can't breathe. And so you have to press yourself up on the nail that's driven between your ankles or into your ankles to breathe. And so you just keep going back and forth and press yourself up to be able to take a breath. At some point when they're like, hey, enough suffering has happened. We need to kill this person. What they would do is they would break their legs. Now with Jesus, it's different. And we 
we go back to the prophecies that none of Jesus's bones would be broken. And what happens instead is they see Jesus and he seems like he's dead to make sure they take a spear and they shove it up under his rib cage and pierce, um, pierce his heart. And what happens is it says blood and water flows. And if you go and figure out what that means, it means that there's a sack around the heart. And what happens is ultimately the heart has stopped and, um, and, and ultimately there was a failure of the heart in terms of why he died. To be able to do this, to have the the to, to have the um, the spear that pierces his heart, to be able to understand all of that, you have to be able to real, realize that these people knew what they were doing. They knew how to kill people, and it was in their best interest to do so. And so, when you begin to think about this wound theory, we begin to say, you know what? It just doesn't hold up as an alternative idea to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We begin to look at that and say, it just doesn't seem like that's intellectually honest to believe that about this event. And so we get to this, and this is the last theory, and this is the Christian theory. And here, this is the theory that Jesus physically died, and then he overcame the power of death and was raised to life. Now, it might be the most mind-blowing of all of these theories, but let's look a little bit, a clo- a little bit closer and to begin to say, okay, does this hold up? Because there's a few things that we get to see that really begins to kind of frame out how this could be actually a way to believe in the event of the resurrection. The first thing is what we begin to understand is it, it's still, it is at the core of, uh, of really how we understand um, the way that Jesus post-resurrection uh, interacted with the world around him. Here's, here's Paul. And he says this in first Corinthians, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Now I want you to get that Paul, this guy who persecuted Christians, right? The guy who, who was radically against Christianity is, is now this guy who is the chief church planter. And he's writing to this church and saying, Hey, this is the core idea. This is above all else. This is, this is the thing. And then he outlines why we should be able to see this. And as we look at this, uh, I want you to get a couple of things that allow us to be able to, to look at Paul's statement and begin to believe that actually Paul is, is, is right. And that Paul is actually telling the truth. So what we begin to see is this idea for, first of all, of biblical evidence. So in biblical evidence, what we begin to see is things that have been written in scripture that begin to align with the act of the resurrection. And, and so let's start off with the, with the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there's these moments where you begin to see these hints of, uh, and sometimes they're really clear in these pictures of the resurrection. Specifically, if you go and you read um, Isaiah um, chapter 50, 53, in Isaiah chapter 53, this is far before Christ, our crucifixion was a thing. This is a far before the clarity of who Jesus was, was a thing and how he would live and how he would die and how God would orchestrate the, the Messiah coming. In fact, what, what Isaiah says goes radically against what the common idea of what God would do to ultimately bring the Messiah to the world. And yet in Isaiah 53, we begin to see him outlining things that are very clear. In fact, things that relate back to the very act of crucifixion and what Jesus and, and the process of crucifixion. So you should read this. But what is key about this is this is written hundreds of years before Jesus. It tells about the act of the resurrection and the process of resurrection. You might say, okay, Keith, hold it. Couldn't someone just go back and doctor those things? Couldn't someone have just gone back and say, hey, if we write this back into this text, no one will really know. And this will be able to really enforce our position that actually Jesus is the Messiah. But a little thing happened about 50 years ago, 
there was a guy that was wandering around the Dead Sea area, and he was actually a sheep, um, a sheep herder, a shepherd, and he was um, ultimately searching for this sheep, and he goes into this cave. There's all these caves around the, the Dead Sea area, and he takes, and trying to find a sheep, he throws a rock into the, uh, into the cave, which I kind of wonder, like, no wonder your sheep are running away. You're throwing rocks at them, right? Why? You're a poor shepherd. Um, but he goes in there, and what happens is, as he throws this, he hears the, the breaking of pottery, and so he explores further, and he finds this massive trove of all of this uh, all of these documents and these documents are dated from before the time of Jesus. And in this, these documents, there is a scroll that has Isaiah 40 to 66. And this is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these have transformed what we actually understand in terms of, uh, in terms of clarifying that what we have in our text, what we have in our Bible is actually incredibly accurate. And over the last 2000 years, it's not changed near as much as it seemingly would have changed. And so you go back and you begin to recognize, hey, this was written before the time of Jesus. In fact, there was a moment that I had. Uh, a few years ago, I traveled back um, and I'm visiting my parents um, and there was this thing that was happening where the Dead Sea Scrolls were on this tour and they came to the Houston Museum of Natural Science. And so um, I go and I go into the exhibit and, and I walk through and there's all these different, you know, exhibits of, of these different things. But in my mind, I was like, I want, I'd heard about uh, the preservation of the Isaiah Scroll and I wanted to see for myself Isaiah 53. And so I go and I find, and there in Hebrew is Isaiah 53. And you begin to see, and there's kind of fragmented and all this, but it begins to, to, to be able to script out and it begins to tell all these, these things. And this is this like profound moment as I'm looking at a document that's dated before Jesus that specifically begins to tell of what Jesus is going to walk through. He's going to foretell and prophesy about the resurrection and so we look at biblical evidence and the Old Testament and we begin to say, man, there's something to that that's undeniable. Then we begin to see in the New Testament. So let me just go through and just help you to be able to say and understand that Jesus is constantly trying to tell his disciples about the resurrection. In Mark 8, he says this, then he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 9, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. The next chapter, Mark 10, it says this, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and, he, and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And then, uh, and then sorry about that, and then three days later he will rise. I want you to get, this is this, this core thing, as you begin to understand, um, he's saying this over and over. And he's like, hey guys, do you get this? I'm saying this over and over. So not only that, what you begin to see is that there are in the Bible, there are eyewitness accounts to this. And so when Paul's beginning to say, hey, of first, of first importance, let me tell you about the resurrection. Let me tell you about this. So you go back and see this. And he appeared to these um, people. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. It says, most of whom are still living. Here's what he's saying. Paul doesn't say, hey, you just got to have faith in the resurrection. When he's saying, hey, this is of, of supreme importance. This is the centerpiece of Christianity. He's not saying, hey, you just got to hope. You just... He's saying it is of supreme importance. Then he begins to outline he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the disciples, and he appeared to 500, some of whom are still living. When you say this, it's verifiable. You can go and begin to say, I want to talk to someone, and you can find them. He said some of them are died, have died, but some of these people are still living, the people that saw Jesus post-resurrection. This is key. Paul says, if you miss this on this kind of thing, you're missing everything because everything is surrounding this key truth. So maybe you're not convinced yet. Maybe this is still, you're just like, hey, you're using the Bible. So let's look at, at this historical evidence. What you begin to see is the transformation of the disciples. As we just begin to say, hey, is what is undeniable is that there was a group of people that were about 120. And this group of people begin to live out this kind of life that began to create a movement. 
Now, as we begin to think about who these disciples were, and as we begin to look at the text and we begin to find out who and what kind of people they were, these were not people that were recognized as world leaders. These were not people that were like, hey, you, you're a movement maker. And Jesus was like the best recruiter. And he was like, I'm just going to recruit all these movement makers. No, he's finding fishermen. And he's finding all these people from all of these just normal ways of life. And what happens is these guys, right, in the moment of, of, the, of the crucifixion, they scatter. They're scared. Peter denies Jesus three times. Then something happens, and these guys go from these cowardly people to all of a sudden, they're standing up to persecution. They're standing in the face of imminent death. They're looking their threats in the eye, and they're not flinching at all. What happens to men like that? What happens to create that in the, in the lives of people? Like there has to be something that happened. They didn't just all of a sudden say, you know what, let's, let's kind of create some belief systems that kind of help us to have clarity in our life. Man, we, we're kind of a wusses, but man, if we just know something happened and when something happens, you begin to see people respond. This is just this crazy thing. So it wasn't like there was a bunch of like preachers that were like convincing them how to do this. This is like normal everyday life for these people. There's guys like Stephen. And Stephen was this guy who likely saw Jesus before and saw Jesus after. And he begins to speak of Jesus. And people get frustrated with Stephen, right? And people are like, hey, we don't want you to talk about Jesus. And he's like, I don't care because what happened? makes me absolutely fearless in terms of death in my life. If Jesus has overcome death, then I can speak to you and I don't have any kind of fear about what you can do to me because ultimately the victory is already won. And so they, they kill Stephen. And you know what? Who's part of that? A guy named Paul. A Paul orchestrates this death and then he goes on this rampage to kill all these Christians. And I don't, I don't know this for sure, but Paul has this crazy experience with Jesus, but he also sees these people and he's going after, he's persecuting these people. And I wonder if he looks into the eyes of these people and there's like, this is the realest thing I've ever seen. That something happened and these people are radically oriented to a new way of life. And even in a way that ultimately is not, not helping them to survive, but they're putting themselves into places of, of great risk because of their belief in this savior, Jesus. So as you begin to think about Paul and you begin to think about this, what you begin to see is this radical shift where he is around these people um, and then he has this moment with, with, with Jesus and then he begins to have this, this fascinating about face. And he goes from the guy who's going to persecute to the guy who's going to take and extend the gospel and extend the Christian church, maybe more than anyone else in human history. And I think it's because he came face to face with people of the resurrection, that people that saw the hope, that people that were unflinching in the face of persecution. And what we begin to see is this, Paul writes, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. He understood that Jesus came and he lived this life, and ultimately he crucified, or he was crucified, and he gave his life freely, even though he had done no wrong, to be able to take upon our sins, and he was placed into the tomb, and he overcame death with his death, and ultimately created a new life in, in God, and, and ultimately redeemed us to God by his actions that we get to celebrate on Easter. And in this, this is the radical transforming thing that we begin to see Paul using this word that is an experiential word. I want to know present tense, the resurrection. And we begin to see that this is something that begins to affect every part of our day. He's like, because of the resurrection, here's what I want to know in my life right now. That the resurrection isn't just at the end of my life. The resurrection is how I live my life. And so if Jesus is the resurrection, if just this is who Jesus is, then it changes everything that we do. It changes every, like, so how do you live? 
If you're a resurrection kind of person, if your belief system has at it at the core that something happened, and out of that something that happened, you have a belief system, it changes everything. And we have to ask yourself, if we believe that Jesus is the resurrection, how does that play out? A few years ago, uh, my grandmother was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And I remember my dad uh, going up to, uh, to talk with the doctors and, um, and she wasn't there as he talked with the doctors and he got the news that, um, that it was terminal and that it was fast moving and that she didn't have very much time to live. And so my dad goes to his mom and tells her that her cancer is terminal and she doesn't have very long to live. And I remember hearing him talk about that. And, and that's one of those moments. That's just one of those formative moments for you to tell your mother that, that she's going to die. And as I asked my dad, I was like, okay, so tell me a little bit about that. What he said was one of the more clear understandings of, of the resurrection. And he began to say, it's just a fact but it's not the end of the story. It's something that's happening right now, but it's not the end of the story. And I begin to recognize, okay, when you begin to understand the end of the story, it takes everything that's happening in your life and it puts a different viewpoint on it. If you can tell your mom that her death is an imminent reality and still function, then there's another truth that you're living by you're not living as if the resurrection is the greatest hoax, but you're living as if it's the greatest hope. And it begins to change everything about your life. And so think about this. When you think through the resurrection and when we begin to process through the resurrection, when you begin to see that what Jesus offers is not just protection. So oftentimes we pray and, hey, God, protect me from this. Keep this bad thing happening from me. Hey, could you kind of put this bubble around my life to keep the bad things from getting in? So God, help me with these things. Help change these things about my life. And we, we begin to think about is the promise that he's given us is far more profound than this. The promise that he's given to us is not that necessarily he's going to put this bubble of protection. It's that he's already won the victory at the end. That when we begin to, to take and say, okay, let's take and, and play everything out to its logical end. At the end, it's the greatest thing that can ever happen to your life. The greatest thing is that you are found in Christ in connection with your heavenly father to spend an eternity of worship with him. And everything is made right, that death is beaten, that ultimately your story is one of victory. And so when we begin to think, hey, Jesus is all about this protection, you need to understand that when you begin to take and understand the resurrection, you can do this. You can take whatever it is. Maybe it's like, hey, my kid is sick and I'm not sure what's going to happen. Or maybe I'm trying to figure out what I'm stressed out or I'm worried about what, what um, choice to make in terms of do I date him or date her? Do I date uh, this person? What, what major do I choose? What job do I take? I've got this financial choice to make. Or um, man, I've got this health thing that's, that's happening in my life. Or I'm worried about my social standing or I'm worried about all these things. All those things that are, are worrisome, all those things that create anxiety, all those things that we begin to say, hey, this is, this is not bringing me joy and satisfaction in, my, in our life. What if we took and did this? We just begin to say, okay, what if the worst thing happened? What if the worst thing happened? And we get to this place where Jesus is still in control and that our destiny is secured in Christ because of the resurrection. And then if you take that at the end point and you begin to say, okay, now what do I begin to believe if I start with the idea that the resurrection is true and that the victory has already been won and there ultimately is a story at the end of my life that is one that is the greatest story that could ever be in my life. And we begin to play that back. And then we begin to look at our, our current circumstances and say, is this worth having deep anxiety about? Is this worth worrying about? Is this worth having this joy sucking, um, just stress about? And I want you to understand that at the end, 
of resurrection comes this deep peace in the here and now. So here's what Jesus says. I am the resurrection. Not just I provide the resurrection. That in me you find victory for everything in your life. And so you begin to see that resurrection people, they start to see um, the, the, the resurrection in all of life. They begin to see all, how God works for their good, even if they can't see it in the moment. And we begin to see like resurrection people, they go through the hard times, they go through the bad times, and they look back and say, this is amazing because of how I was changed through this. Because at the end, I can find joy even in the suffering, even in the hard times because of the resurrection. In my, uh, in my house, uh, we had we asked a friend to, to do some redecorating for us. And so we had this kind of big painting as you walk in and out, uh, kind of over our dining, uh, dining room. And we decided we didn't really like the painting anymore. And, um, and we asked our friend if, if she could paint us something else on this, on this massive canvas. And so my wife said, hey, what would you want on there? If there was something that we were to put on this, is there a phrase or is there anything that you think would be, uh, would be helpful? And, um, and we thought about it for a couple of days and she asked me, um, and, and I said, man, the thing that I want to remember is, is, is captured in the line uh, of a song. And it, and it says this, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And my wife turned to me and she said, that's the exact thing I was thinking. And I want us to get that resurrection, when we begin to say, what does it look like in our life? It looks like this, no guilt in life, no fear in death because of the power of Christ in us. And to think about how the resurrection begins to play out when we say, hey, I can put my hope and trust in this. I can have a worldview around this. And we begin to have this, this view of our world that there's no guilt in this life because of the resurrection and what Jesus has done to accomplish our connection with God not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, but because of what he did. No fear in death. Imagine if we begin to say we are fearless people. We begin to live with this deep peace because the fear of death has been overcome. And this is the power of Christ. And so as I go in and out of my house, I look over and I remember what it's like to be a resurrection-oriented person because I want to be someone who understands there's no guilt in life and no fear in death because of the power of Christ in me. And friends, resonate. This is what I want for you, to be people that begin to understand that the greatest action is Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and proving that and revealing these words. And so what are you gonna do with Jesus who says, I am the resurrection? Is it gonna be the greatest hoax or is it going to be your greatest hope? Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would give us the deep courage to be able to proclaim that you indeed are the greatest hope in our lives. Lord, I ask that you would take and you would help us to look at the evidence and to be able to see that the reality of the resurrection is not just the greatest thing that happened in humanity, but it's the greatest thing that could happen in our life. And as Jesus ended that phrase, do you believe, I pray right now for people who are teetering on the edge of whether they believe or not, Lord, that you would just intersect their heart right now. Lord, that you would just intersect their heart with a deep sense of understanding who you are, that they might take that step even today, that they would go over the edge and say, I believe. I believe that something happened that could change the rest of my life. We ask this to be true in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.